Hey all, welcome to the Military Wire with Mike Schindler. This is the podcast where we interview some of America's most elite men and women who have served this country. We share their stories, their proven lessons in leadership, overcoming, and their journey to find mission and purpose. Today's guest is former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Wesley Clark. General, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mike. Sir, your, your list of accomplishments are long and impactful. You're CEO of your own firm. You've, you're a West Point valedictorian, Rhodes Scholar, author, senior fellow. The list goes on. You have accomplished what many have not and what some ap- aspire to accomplish. What, what drives you, sir? What is your secret? I don't think there's any secret. I think, I think you have to work hard. I think you have to do your best whenever you're given an opportunity. I think you have to have the courage to take opportunities when they're presented. Um, and, and, and a lot of it's just luck. Uh, I hate to say that, but I mean, luck comes when you're prepared to take the opportunity. But some of it is just uncontrollable. I could have been killed in Vietnam. I, I, I turned at the right time and a guy in a bunker emptied a magazine at me and hit me with three rounds right up the right side of my body. But if I hadn't turned, he'd have killed me right down the middle. Mm. I was lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, So walk us through your military service a little bit, sir. You what was, was the military something you always aspired to be a part of, or was it something that you just happened upon? I actually was always drawn to the military, and I can't really tell you why. My father died when I was not quite four. He'd been a year in the Navy in 1918. He'd never really been on a ship. He was a incident in the Navy. I saw a picture of him once. I, I guess I wanted to go to Annapolis, and then I wanted to be an astronaut, but I was nearsighted. Those days, you couldn't go to Annapolis if you wore glasses, and you certainly couldn't fly if you needed glasses, and there was no way to fix your your corneas in those days. So I was at American Legion Boys State in the summer after my junior year in high school, and there was a West Point cadet there wearing glasses, and it just suddenly hit me I was going to go to West Point. I wanted to, be, I wanted to serve the country. I wanted to do something for national security. America was under threat from the Soviet Union. There were ICBMs with nuclear warheads aimed at us. Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, had come to America and said they would bury us. It was a time of a lot of tension and a lot of fear in America, and I wanted to do my part mm. to help us. No, that's that's awesome, you know, sir. That's that's such a more compelling story than mine. I, you know, there was a movie that came out uh, in 1986 that compelled me to uh, join the Navy. <laughs> if you remember that movie, Top Gun. Uh, so that 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 was about. That's what inspired sure. me. I mean, it, yeah. Listen. Top Gun was the greatest recruiting movie for the Navy ever. That's right. And the Army tried to do a recruiting movie afterwards called Firebirds with Nick Cage. But he didn't compare with Tom Cruise and Kelly McGinnis. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, every every you know young man in America went to date Kelly McGinnis, and I think every young girl and, you know, America went to date Tom Cruise, and I think we all went to fly cool jets. So it, it, it was a it was a good mix. Yeah, that's for sure. The thing is, Firebirds was a pretty good movie, and in it, there's some Apache helicopters, and uh, and and Cage does a pretty good job. 
uh, in the way the cage does and looking cool and indifferent and powerful. Uh, but, um, but there's no question in the Army, I was a colonel at the time, and uh, <laughs> I remember hearing the generals talk saying, oh my gosh, we're really in trouble with Top Gun against us. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, to this day, I'm telling you, it's still one of my favorite movies. It's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. So, sir, you know, we often talk, um, you know, and I've gone around the country dealing with transition issues. And, and I know you have led many troops over the years. And and, you know, transition is one of those big points, one of those uh, uncertainty points for many of us who transition. We, we live a life in the military, and then we get ready to transition into the civilian sector. And some of us have plans, some of us don't. Um, and, you know, you've achieved greatness as a general. And, and I think many would think that transition from the military to civilian life was destined to be simple for you. Uh, because of your status, it, was it simple, or, or was leaving something you devoted the majority of your life to was it hard to leave? And, and how was that transition for you? Well, uh, transitions are always hard, and um, you know when you're when it's over and you look back on it, you say, "Well, I was, uh, wasn't so bad," but actually it was pretty bad. The um, I, I was in Belgium, and um, I had I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd been since I was 17 years old. I and I was now 55 years old. I'd done nothing but the military. And the thing about the military is it's really not about money. It's really just about you have to live within your, within your family budget. So you never probably have enough. But, but you're always going to get paid. And the thought of going out there and not having a paycheck was a terrifying thought. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of retirement, but Nobody thinks you're going to survive and prosper on that Army retired pay, not even then. And so um, I didn't know what to do, and I tried to ask for advice. And But it, it was so hard to focus on being a civilian when I was still in uniform and had military duties. It just sort of rushed at me. I remember thinking at the time, I only got six months left in uniform. And I was like, I've got three months left in uniform. I've got 60 days left. And... I didn't have any plans, really. Um, I think it's just one of those things that you have to face up to the fact this is going to be difficult. You do the best you can in the military, and when you get out, you uh, scramble. You work hard. Um, I did not take six months off. I started on my transition period or transition leave, and um, as soon as I gave up command in Europe and came back to Washington, D.C., I was full-time vacation after my retirement parade, I went to work. And even then I wasn't satisfied that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> when you when they put you in a new job and a new profession, after thirty eight years of doing something else, it's not like you just go from one command to another. You're starting fresh. You don't know the language, the culture, the people, the backgrounds of anything. So uh, it's a time of hard work and you have to put yourself into this with a positive spirit. You have to look at it as another adventure, another great opportunity. You, you, you can't look back. You have to move ahead. Uh, you always love the military, the people you knew there, the commands, what it meant to work for the country, but now you're working for something else. And uh, you have to think of yourself and your family and move forward, move ahead with life and find new challenges, new joys. 
Yeah, I mean, those are, those are such wise words. And I, and I think you, you raised a great point that, you know, when we're in service, you know, we've got that, you know, that looming date, so to speak, of, boy, you know, my service is ending. I'm getting ready to transition. What's my plan? I haven't got time to think about a plan. What am I going to do? Um, and and it, I don't want to say it's refreshing, but it's revealing to hear that you went through some of those same very thoughts uh, and, and had to come to terms with that as well, that rank didn't necessarily um, matter, so to speak, in that you still faced the same journey that those that are, you know, E4s or O2s or, you know, O6s face, that you, you've got to really plan right. for. It's in most cases, mostly in your mind, you know. You can be your own worst enemy on this uh, if you get hung up on, on the transition process. Because, look, you're going to go into a different culture. And people aren't going to know you, and you're not going to get treated the same way. And honestly, uh, and, and I don't want this to, to discourage people, but the military is about public service. It's about duty. It's the mission yep. and the troops. Nobody says anything about dollars and cents. And, you know, there's always that joke in the military about, oh, we'll round it up to the nearest million dollars. <laughs> and I got out of the business world. Nobody rounded anything up. I worked with Goldman Sachs and some of the other big banks, and they calculated it down to the nearest penny. And you think, well, this, this is a company that's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I mean, what's a dollar or two? They track every single dollar. And business is about money in a way that the public sector is not. And so you have to get into that culture. When I was getting out, I went to see my old boss, General Alexander Haig, and he said, he said, well, what are you thinking of doing? And um, I said, well, I, I don't have anything yet, but I'm thinking I might try to find a banker. And General Haig said, oh, he said, that's Wall Street. He said, there's people up there that know money, and I don't, and I stay away from them. And pretty smart, because just like... You couldn't bring somebody in from the outside and have them understand the military. Yeah, that's right. You can't go into investment banking and really understand money. So it's taken me a long, long time to get a foothold in this profession. Uh, but I thought that, you know, if you're going to be in business, it is about money. If you're in the military, it's about the troops and leadership, and it's about the use of the military power to support the country. In the business community, that's not what it's about. It's about building an organization or having a company that uh, produces value and that value has to be paid for by someone. Yeah. So what I love to see is I love to see veterans starting their own businesses because the leadership habits you bring from the military, the attention to detail, the showing up on time with the right gear, the follow-through, the teamwork, all that stuff pays off in business. You just have to put those principles and those standards into a different culture. And I think uh, veterans can be extraordinarily successful in the business world if they take the principles like this and can can really transfer them to a culture that is, is about profit. You know, in the military, I used to, we used to, if you did well on your budget at the nine months through the year, your, your boss would call and say, called me and said, well, that's how much money you got left in your budget. But he was just checking to make sure I knew. 
And I said, sir, you know, we're, we're down to $25 million and we're going to... He said, Wes, you know, your brother, battalion commander out there, he's down to about $5 million. I'm going to have to pull some of your money away and make him make sure he's got enough funds to get through the end of the fiscal year. So in the military, a penny saved is a penny lost. Mm, At the yeah. end of the fiscal year, everything goes back to the U.S. Treasury. If you don't spend it, I remember people looking and trying to figure out what to do with their money. Some people... Nope. Years ago. But they still have a problem every year because if the budget is, if money's not spent, it's taken back by the U.S. Treasury. In business, the budget is the revenue that you bring in to your farm. You have to earn that revenue by providing services or building something. And then the budget is, okay, you got this much coming in and here's how you're going to spend it. But you don't spend what you don't make unless you borrow it. And you don't give it to somebody else unless you loan it and they pay you back. So it's a major fundamental difference in outlook. Yeah, I think that's important for people to remember, too, is when you get into the business world, it's it's really about performance and what you can do to add value to a company or to a corporation or to a nonprofit or to some, you know, your next mission. But it's got to tie to revenue. And uh, I think I think that's those are wise words, sir. Those are very wise words. I want to I, I want to sh- shift gears. You're you're you are interviewed with a number of other experts in a film soon to be released, uh, "Living in the Future's Past." Tell us about this film and and your involvement in it. Well, I think it's a great film. I, of course, I had nothing to do with writing it, but Jeff Bridges called and he said, "You know, you're one of the people we'd like to interview because I've been concerned about energy and climate change." since I got out of the military. I would study energy policy as a captain teaching economics at West Point. I wrote the first papers in the Pentagon on energy as a threat to national security, on the oil insecurity caused by the rise in oil prices in the Middle East in 1972 and 73. And so I followed this. When I got out, I was a sort of a half expertise I thought I could develop and make use of in the civilian world. And of course, you can't talk about energy without recognizing what the explosion of greenhouse gases is doing to the country. And it is a major uh, issue for us. We're pushing our way into a climate catastrophe. You know, there's never been a Greenland ice cap ever when there's as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as there is today. So mm. if you talk to scientists who've flown over the Greenland ice cap, they'll tell you it looks like Swiss cheese in places up there. Some of that ice is two miles thick, and it's melting. And it's melting to the tune of millions and millions of gallons per year flowing into the Atlantic. And and that's an indicator of how fast the climate is changing. That cat is getting thinner. As it gets thinner, it changes the weather patterns around the world. It changes the height of the seas. It changes the heat in the atmosphere. Storms become more intense. Sea level rises. Military bases are put in jeopardy. Rainfall pattern changes. People lose their farms. Thousands of people migrate and encroach on other people's countries in Africa. Um, it's, it's a major threat to national security. And so from that perspective, that, that film that Jeff Bridges made, 
was a really important effort to awaken the American public to the dangers that lie ahead. So, and, and, and thank you for that. I mean, there's such debate, uh, and whether it's, you know, true debate or factual debate, you know, around global warming and, and based on what you're saying, it's, it's very real. And the importance for people to see the film is, is very evident. What are things that people can do to influence climate change in a positive way? Will, will we learn that from this film? Well, you know, I, I think that I think that what individuals can do is important to have a sense of participating in the solution. But honestly, this climate change is a function of economic development in the world, and we we can't change economic development. People in Africa want to live like people in the United States. And uh, you can't have a car and you can't send your kids to university because of climate change. So they're going to they're gonna get here. And when they get here, they're going to cause a, uh, a 500 million new people in 25 years in Africa. It's going to be one more burden on the Earth's, let's call it, ecosphere. It's going to generate additional heat into the atmosphere. So efficiency helps. New sources of energy helps. But... The truth is we have to have new technology that will actually suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and do something with it. Hmm. Well, and that, I, listen, that's for people much smarter than me, sir. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that I, I'm looking at, you know, does it help? For us to shut off the lights, does it help for us to get, you know, the battery-powered cars? What are simple steps that people can take um, that can... Well, I think that, I think anything like that helps. I think if you use less electricity, that's good. If you uh, burn natural gas instead of oil or coal, that's good. Natural gas is cleaner, but natural gas is still emitting carbon dioxide. If you use steel... If you build a building of concrete, if you cut down a tree, all of those things in their own way add to the greenhouse gases that in the atmosphere. And so um, I think just like in World War II, you know, the U.S. government asked people to turn in their aluminum pots and pans and, and so forth because it was a way of getting participation in the war. Today, I think it's important to get public participation in this campaign, but the truth is this is something that has to be led by big business and by government. Mm. And we first have to invest in the technologies. They will require energy, hopefully solar energy, to bring the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And then they'll require massive investments to deploy that technology around the world. So we've got some major challenges ahead to help planet Earth support seven and a half, eight and a half, ten billion people into the next century um, in an acceptable lifestyle and with something near the climate we have today. Well, and I think that's an, an investment, you know, worthwhile. I mean, as a dad of two daughters, you know, I, I want to see them grow up, you know, in, in a world that is better than what I've grown up in. You know, we need, I think that's a principle that we all learn too, is do our best to leave things better than what we found them. 
and uh, I, I think I think you make a solid argument that we need to uh, we need to pay attention to this for sure. So, you general, I, I do. I think you have to leave the. I think you do have to leave the world better off. I think you have to understand and do your part. And look, some of our veterans are going to be out there on the front lines of this. They're going to be developing the technology. Mm-hmm. They're going to be deploying it. That's a wonderful thing. But uh, I just would ask all our veterans, keep your eyes and ears open. Um, read, study, learn about the bigger picture of the United States of America and our place in the world. It's When you're in the armed services, you take a pledge to uphold and support the Constitution of the United States, and you, the officers appointed over you. And they tell you what to do. And you can object. You can say you got a better suggestion. Hopefully they listen to you. But ultimately, you're part of a big organization. And it's going to follow the directions of the National Command Authority. When you're a veteran, um, you're on your own. And you've got to use your own judgment. And you cannot just sort of plow blindly ahead. I think the world will change. The world is changing around you all the time. I'll tell you, I want to end by just telling you one story if I could, Mike. Yes, sir. Yep. I was at Fort Myer. I was still a four-star general, and I was going into the personnel office at Fort Myer to get my new ID card because they give you a different ID card, different color when you're retired. As I was walking up the steps, I had my aide behind me, and um, an older man who lost all his hair and he was probably a retired officer, maybe in his 70s or something, was coming out from the same building. And he looked at me and he said, General, he said, I know why you're going in here. And let me tell you one thing. When you're out in the civilian world, just remember, there's no one in charge. Mm. And I thought, God, what a perfect message. Yeah. You know, it's the truth. Yeah. You're, 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 it's an entirely different world. So I hope our veterans will have successful transitions, take charge of their lives, love your families, respect your neighbors, and help make America great by participating fully in public life, doing your own work, being as subjective as possible, and, um, and, and, and have a great life. And I want to thank everyone who's listening to all of our veterans. For their service. You didn't have to join the armed forces, and you did. And we love you for that. General, those are such wise words, and it's so important that uh, you're right. Our our brothers and sisters remember that they really, truly are part of America's greatest asset, and we need to leverage that talent, that skill, that ability that we brought and learned in the military back into the civilian sector to make big changes. And I'm going to encourage all our listeners to plug into Jeff Bridges' award-winning documentary, Living in the Future's Past. It brings a fresh perspective on being human for our challenging times and asks, what kind of future would you like to see? It, it opens in theaters October 5th through the 11th, nationwide on Tuesday, October 9th. You're going to see General uh, Clark in this movie as well, being interviewed with a number of other folks. Uh, General, I just want to say thank you for your time. Appreciate it. I'm grateful uh, in so many ways. So thank you for being on the show.